you know, individualist tendency identity is how I'm different and distinct from everyone else. Whereas collectivists emphasize identity is how I'm the same, what I share with other people. The truth is identity is a compilation of, of both, right? When love is tied to individualism, your sense of being lovable is linked to how well you stand out, what you achieve, right? And so if you're not standing out or if you're failing ever, then the kind of built-in assumption is that somehow you're less valuable to him. Whereas mm. that is simply not the way a collectivistic mindset thinks. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Hey everyone, Brad here. Welcome back to Post Everything. And today you are in for a treat. It was several years ago now that I was kind of searching for some resources on how to understand the differences between shame and guilt and how to even understand that from a biblical lens. And I'd reached out to a former professor of mine, Dr. Jay Sklar, who when I asked him, hey, do you have any resources on shame? And especially in scripture, he said, hey, you know what? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go straight to this article in the Thamelios Journal by Dr. Brad Vaughn on Have Theologians No Sense of Shame? Reading that article kind of blew my mind on how much individualism has colored our lens for reading scripture and even understanding how shame operates in the background of our culture and of our society in ways we're not aware of because of what is in the foreground versus the background of what we notice and see in our world. And it was fundamental and monumental in changing the way that I view even ministry in a lot of ways. And so Dr. Brad Vaughn is our guest for today, and we're going to talk about something else, but you should know he has his PhD from Southeastern Baptist Seminary. He is the theologian in residence with the Global Training Network, and but that follows actually two decades of teaching theology and missiology to Chinese pastors and equipping the underground church in China. He's written several books, the most recent of which is The Cross in Context, released just in 2022. And today we're having him on because, as you can tell from everything I just listed, he has a unique cultural perspective and experience in ministry across the world that gives him a view on things that is not as limited to individualism as ours is. And he can help us more clearly see and appreciate how individualism has saturated, compromised, and even reduced how we think about our identities, how we source our dignity, value, and worth, and how that is being formed. Or at least that's what we thought we were talking about, because it turns out that individualism, uh, it's even compromised how we understand and proclaim the gospel itself. And I hope that this conversation is as helpful and encouraging and awe-inspiring as it was for us. And so without further ado, let's jump in. Well, Dr. Brad Vaughn is joining us and it is great to have you here. If this name doesn't sound familiar to you, it's probably because Brad has written primarily underneath the pseudonym of Jackson Wu, which he's published multiple academic articles and books around and the pseudonym is in order to protect the Chinese Christians and the underground church that he has been working with for decades. And so if that name is not familiar to you, that's why. And 
Dr. Vaughn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. We are too. I'm going to jump in. I got a question for you just around what you do. You train missionaries to proclaim and contextualize the gospel in the Eastern cultures. And that requires a lot of cultural savvy on your part, just understanding and an awareness of how identity works, not just in our culture as a Western culture, but also in in non-Western cultures. What would you say is the biggest difference when it comes to this idea of identity? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And of course, I could go off, so feel free to cut me off. The distinction between individualism and collectivism and all that goes with that is certainly, I think, the biggest difference. And funny enough, because people have written about it, I think that this topic, when it comes to ideas of identity formation, it's probably the most assumed set of categories that people think, oh, I assume I know it. But yet it's overlooked, and it's probably the most impactful, I think, in terms Mm. of what it means to form identity. And so it's not just the difference between those two cultures, but I think across the way. So Mm. I can give you some descriptions of the two, but I want to emphasize that when I talk about individualism and collectivism, I'm talking about patterns and preferences of acting and thinking. Okay, so yeah, the spectrum. Please, yeah, like give us a definition. Like what does that look like? What does that mean? Or what should it mean instead of how we use it? So rather than define, I like describe as a little easier in the sense of, Individual societies focus primarily on the individual's goals and needs and rights. Emphasis on self-reliance, personal achievement are valued. Individuals are considered responsible for their own success or failure. And so there's a strong emphasis for equal opportunity for people. Mm. One thing that I'll probably hit on again and again is the concept emphasis on individual rights taking precedence over collective responsibilities. Mm. But there's a whole ripple effect in terms of characteristics that come from this, you know, groups and societies and churches are seen as a collection of individuals rather than kind of entity in itself, you know, autonomy, self-expression, individual goals are prioritized over the group. Decision-making is often based on individual preferences, things like that rule-based decision-making abstract principles kind of to govern the conscience. So that's individualism. And later, if you want, we can distinguish individualism from individuality because those are not the same thing. Oh, okay. Now, collectivism is a lot of the opposite. It focuses on the group over the individual. So harmony, cohesion, collective well-being is a big deal. Responsibility and relationships are a big focus. You get a lot of honor and shame dynamics that come into play because if you think about it, if you're thinking about how relationships work, you're also thinking about how to honor people and not to shame mm. people. And so the decision-making is often like what's best for the group. Rather than thinking about independence, it's about interdependence. And so things like norms, you know, what is standard, what is customary, tend to drive decision-making and decision-makings, you know, duties and obligations. That's great. You know, I mentioned before we hit record that I had done some work in London working with South Asians. And I remember this moment where I had made a friend who was from India And we were about the same age. And I asked him, I said, are you looking to get married soon? And he said, no. And I said, why not? And he said, well, my older sister hasn't gotten married yet. Hmm. And I was like, I don't Hmm. understand. Hmm. And he said, well, she needs to get married first. And in my mind, I was like, just does not compute. You know, I was like, that's a weird rule. But I didn't understand the operating program that was running that you just described. I'm curious, what other things like that do your students find surprising as they examine 
Western cultures, individualism or Eastern cultures, more collectivism? Yeah, that's a great question because there's a litany of it. I mean, <laughs> this distinction between collectivism and individuals affects everything from moral decision making, communication, how you view time, tradition, education. I mean, even the ways you process information, it's just it's just big. So I think one of the biggest things is this distinction between rights and responsibilities. You know, at a very practical level, Westerners don't like the idea that what they should do and their decisions should be limited by, determined by others. Western individuals in general don't like social obligations or social debt that they hold accountable for. Well, I mean, they do play some good, right? Because Disney movies would not have a plot if there wasn't a protagonist who was rebelling against the social norms that was expected of them, right? We're supposed to let it go, I hear. I just, sorry to, tr- <laughs> to trigger anybody with you know frozen baggage, but yeah. Well, it's funny, like one of the things a lot of missionaries struggled with when they came to China was this idea of social debt. You know, you owe them something because they want to pay it back really fast so that you don't have, you know, to do something, right? You know, which is odd because that's the inherent nature of any relationship is this infinite debt, you know, that you owe to each Mm. other, right? And so, you know, Westerners will justify it in all the kinds of different ways saying, oh, we don't want to, you know, have groupthink, you know, we don't want to have cults or institutional abuse, Right. Or they'll say, oh, we don't want to stifle creativity with conformity. So that's the one way we'll get out of it. Westerners tend to think in A, B thinking, either or thinking. So it's rights or responsibilities. And so it's a Mm. lot more fun to think about my rights, you know, what's owed to me rather than what I have to do, right? But there's all kinds of other things that go along with that. Indirect communication is something a lot of Westerners will struggle with. Mm -hmm. You think about in relationship intense culture where honoring people is important, respect, being direct can make people lose face and can be dishonoring. And so Mm. understanding how indirect communication works, hierarchical relationships are valued and seen as useful because after all, if they're in that position, they have a certain responsibility. We want to honor that. And they probably have a certain amount of wisdom or experience with that hierarchy also goes hierarchy in time. So Mm. the role of tradition is valued because after all, your ancestors and those who were before you, we want to hear what they say and how they did stuff. And so one of the things I like to say is that whatever is standard becomes the standard, Mm. right? So whatever is normal becomes normative. And so there's far more of a focus on the past and where we've been as opposed to in the West where it's forward oriented. Mm. And anyways, I mean, there's several others, but I mean, I'm sure you don't want me to do a whole lecture. No, no, no. This is fantastic. Like I keep thinking about, as you're talking, I recently preached a sermon in our church in second Samuel in a series on the life of David. And it was on the passage where he asks his advisors, is there anyone of Saul's household who I can show the kindness of God to the chesed of God, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to. And it's Mephibosheth who comes and, you know, his ankles have been broken in the flight from palace when Saul and Jonathan and Jonathan's brothers were killed. Like what's fascinating to me, just even taking the lens that you're describing into a text like that. And then part of my approach to preaching, it was like, Hey, I want you all to know that compassion for Mephibosheth's situation and his individual story is a good thing. And that is not why David says he did this. Mm -hmm. It was not compassion for Mephibosheth, the rights that he was 
deprived of. It was David's obligation to God's anointed Saul and the covenant he had with Jonathan. It was actually obligation that drove him, not compassion. And that's a hard thing for Westerners to wrap our mind around because as you're talking about, like obligation feels completely and utterly antithetical to the fundamental assumption that more rights will always be better and more rights is always the solution to every discomfort or problem we have. And yet, mm-hmm. yeah, that just seems like it's not playing out terribly well for us right now as a like society <laughs> in general. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes down to how the two perspectives see identity. You know, individualist tend to see identity as how I'm different and distinct from everyone else, whereas collectivists emphasize identity as how I'm the same, what I share with other people. And the two kind of cultural spectrums, as it were, tend to lose the other because the truth is identity is a compilation of, of both. Right. Mm. And so when you're focusing on how I'm different and distinct and everything is about, I'm just responsible for myself. And there really aren't ties between us. You kind of deny those because after all, that would give you some sense of obligation, responsibility. Right. Mm. And so this whole thinking, I mean, even affects things like educational systems and ways of thinking. So like mm. you have a lot more emphasis on memorization in non-Western cultures, because after all, it's important to learn the lessons and the wisdom of the past, right? And oh, a lot of critical thinking and analytical thinking, what does that do? That ends up challenging assumptions, challenging norms, trying to find little things that might go wrong. And so, you know, that even has an effect in that respect. I kind of want to double click on that a little bit, because one of the things I've noticed when we're talking about individualism, there are several flavors of individualism that seem to kind of function in a kind of whack-a-mole sense. Like as soon as you pin one down, it feels slippery and it kind of escapes into the side. Like, for example, like when you're talking about education, yeah, that critical thinking from one perspective in a highly individualistic culture, that can be like really good because you're equipping somebody to be able to exercise their rights further. But there's another aspect of individualism, like self-expressive individualism, where critical thinking is getting in the way of and taking time away from the most important identity building activity you can have, which is putting yourself there and curating your image and how you're perceived and expressing what's true for you instead of what might be objectively true. And so like every time you go there, like, oh, well, maybe it's good over here. Like, I think what that does is it makes it really hard to kind of really concretely pin something down and say and trace it back to its roots so that we can actually address it. And so I kind of want to try to trace it down to the root and please poke holes in this, right? So it, it seems to be the common denominator across these kind of flavors of individualism is a fundamental assumption as a default that we achieve our ultimate dignity, value, and worth individually instead of receive our dignity, value, and worth, our identity collectively. And because to receive means you are dependent on something or someone other than yourself, even if it's not a person or a community. And that seems to be the biggest fundamental difference. Is that accurate? I mean, because I I know that there's a sense that when we're talking about individualism versus collectivism, there's the views that this is how identity formed, and then there's how identity is actually formed, right? So (laughs) there's like an objective, actual way that this happens that we may not even be aware of. So like, that's what I'm wanting to get at through these two different things. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's a fair way of saying it. I mean, you're using a lot of the language that I would talk about when I talk about honor and shame, which is Mm. we frequently say is achieved and ascribed. Hmm. In other words, what have I done distinct from others? 
And yeah. I get my value that way. Or what is it that I share with others and I derive from others, whether it be my last name or whether it be my ethnicity or the language I speak or whatever else, right? And it's what things are we emphasizing. So part of the identity question is it really marks what do you place as your standard of value? You know, hmm. what things do you prioritize in your list of values? And the more you focus on immutable traits or sameness, you're going to think more collectivistically, you know, because your honor is hmm. tied to people with those traits. And the more you emphasize things that are unique to you, the more individualistic you're going to think. So mm-hmm. that's a lot of the ballgame right there. Can you give maybe a couple examples of like, what does that look like fleshed out? The principle of what you're describing is I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But if it were that simple, wouldn't we have a greater awareness of that? I don't know. I'm trying to connect the dots there. Well, in the waters we swim in, identity is almost only talked about as how we're different. And so people don't even think mm. about the other you know, thing. So sure. And the same mm. thing in the East. So I you know, got straight A's. I got a scholarship. You know, I won this award, right? And I look like this. I sing like this. I have a million followers, whatever the thing is. It's like, mm. I, 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 right? And we don't even think about the fact that identity is also how you're the same as other people. Yeah. Um, and so people think, well, I just don't want to be like them. And it, it's like a cultural value. Well, I just want to do something different, which never, it never occurred to a lot of people in a lot of non-Western cultures because you're like, that's exactly what you want to do because there's wisdom in the group, right? And there's a sense of solidarity and we're the same. And, and you see some of this, and I think we'll get into it, some of this collective thinking seeping back and more in the West, more overtly. Hmm. But I can tie the two together, how this is that maybe you have a kid who achieves honor and gets a sense of of pride because they get straight A's. The Mm -hmm. parents may get their sense of value and pride because of their association with their kid. Right. That's interesting. So in the very same situation, you have a collective sense of honor and worth and then a individualistic sense. Right. Huh. You know, I have many times referred to social media as the most potent innovation and the purest form of systemic individualism we have ever created, in part because, yes, there is a social ascribing, but the incentive or the currency of that social ascribing of honor is through and only incentivized by being different and being unique in a world of people. Like, if there's anything that has just caused so much anxiety among especially teens. When I was in high school, I had to differentiate from my peers and my peers were limited to the people in my high school, right? Peers of high school students now could be hundreds or thousands of miles away. And it's not hundreds or maybe even dozens, it's millions. And the pressure that that creates to differentiate, to have a sense of who you are, that sounds soul crushing to me. I would push back a little bit. I would say, yes, that's the goal. That's the promised Mm -hmm. land, so to speak, is if Mm -hmm. they can somehow stand out. But in the meantime, you have to do it while fitting in just well enough. So you have to look a certain way. And you Mm -hmm. can't say something too contrary in opinion because you might get canceled. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to virtue signal and you have to do all these things to make sure you're conforming within the group enough. So it's also an incredible demonstration of groupthink and collective think. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so interesting. And that's an aspect that's like, I know it's there, but man, that's a fascinating point. I want to dig in a little bit just to the idea of shame. And you flushed out some of the stuff about collectivism in a helpful way. I think maybe as Westerners, 
the idea of shame has come more into our collective conscious culturally as more and more people are talking about mental health. Even as we talk about social media, it can be a shame producing thing, both as a personal experience, as you don't measure up to people, or also as you maybe are called out or made fun of on social media, it can be something that produces shame. What's different about how we as Westerners think about shame and maybe how it functions in more Eastern contexts when we talk about shame and honor. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I think Westerners oftentimes have bad impressions of shame. And it certainly does have destructive elements. And there are different kind of shades of shame is that they're thinking only in terms of individually and it's individual psychology mm. and how you measure up where you rank in respect to other people. And so you want to stand out and and it's competitive. But we also, even though it's kind of suppressed, get this non-Western view of shame as a sense of sensitivity to others' opinions. And Mm -hmm. so that if you say that you're shameless, that's a bad thing, right? You know, that means you're immoral. You're dangerous, actually, because you don't care about what other people think, right? I mean, these things are tied together. But one of the things we do when we don't understand what a healthy shame looks like we lose the ability to do a lot of what you see Paul do and other biblical writers is use a healthy view of shame, not the toxic shame that says you're bad, but the kind that says, Hey, you belong a part of us. You aspire to be this. You're not living up to that. You know, you can do that. And you go, you know what? You're right. Mm. I want to be that type of person. And Tully Lau's book, defending shame, uh, deep dive academically into how Paul used shame constructively for the sake of forming character in the church. So I think that's one of the reasons. What would be the difference between what you're describing when you just articulated, like Paul saying, like you're falling short of what you aspire to. Like what's the difference between that and just like how we kind of consider encouragement or is that the same thing? We just use a different word. Well, encouragement has different connotations. You know, encourage could be like a, you know, prodding, you can do it, you can do it. Or it can Mm. be Hey, you are doing it. Right. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the kind of healthy shame is, hey, you're better than this. You know, I know Mm. you can. It's that these are your values and you're not living up to them. Let's go. You know, come on. Mm. As opposed to a toxic shame is the sense of like you're irredeemable. You're worthless. You know, you're fundamentally flawed, you know. So that's the distinction. And when you miss that, I think you miss so much of how the Bible sees discipleship, character formation, group identity. Because the truth is, if you don't have a sense of collective identity, and collective solidarity with the church, the people of God, all you can have is toxic shame. You don't have access to healthy shame. Okay. I want you to talk about that more, please. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Well, like how? Because part of our sense of shame is sensitivity to other people, right? And if you yeah. have a sense of, of I belong to these people and they give me an example and they reinforce these values and these standards in my life, then I do want to be like them. I do want their praise and pleasure because they are Mm. models of what I want to be like. Right. Mm. And we challenge each other in these values, even when we fall short, you know, maybe they're setting the example in how to repent well. Right. But if you're on an Island, you're individual. Then all of a sudden when someone attempts to be family and evoke a healthy sense of shame, then all of a sudden you're like, what do you do? who are you to tell me this and, you know, stay out of my business and whatever else. And then you can't be the church and there's no discipleship that actually happens. It's interesting. When I was pastoring up in St. Louis about 
maybe like 15% of our church was refugees from Burma and maybe 20% were refugees from Nepal. And we were wrestling with this idea of shame as it comes to identity. You know, when we had some people in the community that were acting out of Christian character to kind of put all this together, us as Americans, we wanted to be very direct and like, hey, let's go talk to them. Let's set this straight. And very wisely, the pastor who was Burmese was like, okay, let's slow this down a little bit because it's not just about correcting the behavior. There's a whole system here that is Mm. connected to how we go about this. And if it calls the person out in the wrong way, like it's going to dishonor everybody, not just the person. And that Mm. was really hard for me to grasp, but, you know, something I had to grow in. But I remember one interesting saying that we realized, you know, for Westerners, we like the saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so I'm going to speak up because I want to be me and I want to get the attention. Whereas a more apropos saying for them was the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. You know, you kind of think about that and you're like, at first that sounds violent, but the idea is, let's say the nail sticking out of the floor and the floor is meant to provide this foundation. Well, the nail that's sticking out isn't helping thinking about what the whole is functioning as. And so Mm -hmm. the rest of the community will come and say, we're supposed to be different than what you're doing. We want you to be like us because we're trying to collectively be something together. And even as we start thinking about it that way, we start to get into that question of identity. We're starting to like inch our way into that idea of what forms our identity as Westerners versus non-Westerners. Yeah. And we get these dynamics. These are completely foreign to us. In fact, this is just good wisdom. It's Mm. not always wise to try to be a bull in a china shop. And it's actually arrogant to assume that everybody ought to hear what you have to say. You know, perhaps we should back down, listen, learn, understand, and then find our place and our way of having influence because the truth is we might be misunderstanding something or the most influential thing to do might be to talk to this person on the side and they'll have bigger influence. You know, so that's why you have such an emphasis in wisdom literature and wisdom Mm. philosophies and religions in the East is because, again, they're more aware of relationships and their collective identity. Man, I have a very practical thing that I would love for you to speak into for very selfish reasons. So two days from now on Saturday, I'll be teaching and going through another kind of annual, we're trying to make it twice a year now, but a membership class for our church. And when we first launched the table, I don't know that I felt this way in the moment, but in hindsight, absolutely. I think I kind of undervalued and played down the responsibility side of what it meant to be a member and talked about like in our materials where I'm saying like, Mm -hmm. as a member, you have these rights Mm. and you're kind of blowing my mind a little bit. So like, talk to me, what would you say would need to change? Like in terms of the way that we typically think about church membership, like what would a healthy collectivism in the way that you're describing that balances out, it doesn't replace individualism or probably individuality, but like what are the blind spots, especially around membership? How do we do that differently in a way that actually is more humanizing and flourishing for people? Well, you're dealing with something systemic, a whole concept. So it's not a matter of just saying, hey, you guys, you have these responsibilities and obligations. And if you don't, you're kicked out. Like that's not getting the point. Part of it has to do with thinking as a group so that as leaders, 
we're not simply dictating, but we're empowering. We're thinking what's best for the whole group. That may mean for some pastors, they don't teach every week. Maybe they empower other people. Mm. It means, you know, uh, modeling so that the people feel a healthy sense of shame when they go, you know what? I'm just being a leech in this community. You know what? Mm. I see other people serving and loving one another. And I want to be like that. Mm. Right. And so where you create new norms, and so those would be the kind of things that the culture you want to create. But as long as the church is seen as a collection of individuals rather than as a genuine family of God, then every time you try to focus on somebody's dynamics you're talking about, you're going to say, oh, we're not a cult, you know, you know, or, or, <laughs> yes. or, or we're being too exclusive and insidery, you know, and whatever else. And so this whole individualistic mindset is making it just impossible to be the church in the West. I was just going to say that exact same thing, because I think so often what I've seen is that churches that sort of run on or try and push towards the collectivism that is necessitated to be the church. It's really hard. It is like swimming upstream. But a lot of times churches have almost I don't mean this in a deceptive way, but they've kind of tricked people into being part of the church by putting the backstory as like a collection of individuals and we all just happen to be doing this together, our own God thing. And it's like, no, no, no. Like we're bonded together. It's part of it. Like we're part of this together. When the body hurts, the other part of the body hurts. It's just so interesting how other parts of the world get this so much easier than we do. And some of the dysfunction we have as a church in the West has to do with this refusal to give up, well, what does it say in Romans 12? We are Christ's body and individually members of it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. the individuality, there's the membership. Every person's important, but because every person's important, like, you know, you're important just like everybody else. One of my friends yes. says that. Yes, I said to my kids, you're unique just like everyone else, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I frequently do is I'll raise my hand, I point to my hand, I said, is this my body? And no matter how you answer, you're right and wrong. Because yes, it is my body, but yet it's a part of my body. But as an analogy, Westerns will say it's a part of your body, whereas an Eastern might say it's your body because it's a whole. And we fundamentally see ourselves, the body of Christ, as a collection of parts. Well, not to be grotesque, but if you just saw all my body parts laying on a bed, that wouldn't be me. Mm. It's mm. called a dead body. Man. It's interesting. One of the things that we put on our membership commitment is that we want you to be willing to serve in children's ministry. Like we're not saying you have to, and we're also not saying, no, serve wherever you want. We're saying you need to be willing to in part because it kind of seems to surface and expose where we have this attitude of like, what is most important is that I am serving God in my capacity as I see it. And it's like, no, 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 no. To be willing means that we want to have the conversation with you that like the basis of your service and your volunteering actually is the needs of the body. That's actually yeah. the important thing that, cause that's family. When I went to Gordon Conwell, one of the churches we attended had a really great way of doing it. They didn't talk about if we would be willing or whatever else they just said, uh, when are you doing it? And so we had kids in the nursery and it was like, okay, is it this week or next week? Or you want to do it the third Sunday? It was always <laughs> assumed like that's what's going to happen. And you might yeah. not be free for a while, but I'm going to keep asking when, not if, whether, but when, and let me put it in the calendar. 
because this is what we do as a family, right? Mm. But there's a whole sense of like, I do have a right to push myself on you because of the needs of the body, just like I would with my wife or my kids or they to me. I love it. I'm going to uh, tell our children's director that they can quote you on that and she will be so happy. (laughs) (laughs) No, let's go upstream on this a little bit because I think it's one thing to talk about you know, the very pragmatic implications of like what kind of a difference this would make. But I'm struck by how, yes, the Bible is God's word and it is inerrant and inspired by the spirit, but it also was communicated and articulated through a particular culture that is Middle Eastern and in many ways is the overlap part of the Venn diagram between East and West and North and South for that matter. And so I'm curious, like how you see the difference between individualism and affecting our hermeneutic, affecting how we even read and understand scripture, the kind of difference that could make. And the best example I can think of is in Genesis 12, God tells Abram to leave the land of his fathers, right? There's a collective connection there already to go to the land that he will show him. And there he will make his descendants as numbering the stars in the sky and sand in the sea. And he will make his name great. And just the language of name has always been interesting to me because actually this is perfect. Dr. Vaughn, we can talk about this because I hate my name. I hate Brad. Like it's just <laughs> like, let's just be real collectively. We have one good Brad in the world that we can be like, Hey, I have an association with him. It's Brad Pitt. I use it all the time to help people remember my name. Cause I say, you know, the resemblance. Yes. <laughs> and, and so I, people will remember it later on. They'll go, Brad Pitt. I'm like, yes, yeah, because you, look, you do look like him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> less so, but who does, right? But every other Brad, like if you in, in movies, the guy named Brad is a jerk. Like is probably in a fraternity. He's a bro. And so it's like, man, the association's not great. But outside of that, right? the way that we understand names is primarily a label or maybe an empty vessel Mm. that we then fill out and define. Right. But when God is saying to Abram, I will make your name great. He's not talking about celebrity here. He's not Mm. talking about notoriety or being renowned. He's talking about something far more transcendent and existential at the same time. And so is this hunch accurate? Like, what are we missing? What is actually oh, in a name? Oh, it's, it's super dense and right and spot on with the ancient Near East. You know, mm. a name represented a person's being who they are. You mm. know, you see this in a lot of worship songs, you know, where people use names interchangeable with God himself. So a name represented who you are, your family, your community, your ancestry. And so it's not just, oh, that you're going to be, you know, well-known or whatever else, but that you and your family have character or have some mm. kind of fortune and blessing that has come to you or will come to you. And so it speaks to the course of one's life. And most cultures outside the contemporary West to have honor like that would be to speak to the type of righteous life and blessed life that you have. It could even have connections to a covenant, you know, that God's name is put on us. Right. We have Mm. a special relationship with God. And so not only that, but we have a special relationship, but he has a plan for us, you know, because after all, we bear his name. Right. I think Carmen Imes is right on when she talks about what it means to bear the Lord's name, you know, Mm. to represent him into the world so that 
it also gives us and gives Abraham a responsibility. It makes us a channel for blessing. Man, that's so good. I can't help but see even there too. Like there's a sense that he's not starting from scratch when he does this. There's a redemptive from an original place in that because the first time something or someone is named is Adam, right? After being created and God names Adam, Adam. And then Adam is then given the responsibility of naming all the animals and calls Eve her name for the first time. Like there is something fundamental about what it means to be human being caught up in that, that I'm stunned that as Westerners being obsessed with identity, that we actually aren't plumbing the resources for that. But part of me wonders too, if when you fast forward to Genesis 11 and you have the Tower of Babel, you have the motivation explicitly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like everybody, you know, points to the tower being built high as to the heavens, like, like they're trying to be God. It's like, actually before that, the motivation is to make a name for yourself. Yep. Yep. I mean, that sounds so much like our world, doesn't it? Think about yeah. now when parents name their kids, the number one criteria is they want to be different. How does it stand out? You know, so they're not like all the other kids. Whereas every time I go anywhere else, I just came back from Egypt and, you know, where I be in East Asia, people ask me, what does that mean? Mm. What does that name mean? That's their first question. And mm. we don't even tend to think about meaning. We just want to stand out, even if it's for meaningless reasons. That's incredible. That is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. It's a substitute for love because if people are noticing me, it must mean that I'm worthy. Oh, man. Wow. That's that's interesting. You might have just diverted the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. Well, let me ask it this way because so much of who we are in Scripture is tied to God's love for us. So as the people of God, the Mm. identity that we receive is one that's based in love and speaks love over us. So the funny thing is, though, like the word identity doesn't really appear in Scripture, yet the concept is there, much like the idea of or the concept of the Trinity. There's no word Trinity. So maybe you can go into even that idea of love a little bit more as an identity. How do you think we should think about or understand that modern dynamic of identity from a biblical standpoint without getting too Western? Well, there's very little connection between the two, frankly. So if you allow me just to be a nerd for about a minute, because turn people off, is that in ancient Near Eastern covenants, kings would talk about loving one another. And even though one just dominated and destroyed his people, because the whole idea of love was one of loyalty and identification with, allegiance to, commitment, Uh, responsibility to. There was not this emotional thing that was driving it. So, you know, the idea of chesed, steadfast love, is about we are bonded together. Where you go, I go. You know, you know, uh, you, you know, we hear that kind of said again and again. That is the biblical idea of love, commitment, loyalty, allegiance, identification. And then emotions grow with that, right? I mean, you think about the deepening of a marriage and how much you love them more than when you first loved them because your lives are intertwined with one another. Of course, we don't want relational obligations, so we don't end up having true love because we don't entwine ourselves in each other's lives, right? We're hoping for some sort of feeling that will eventually come to start us off, but that follows later. Indulge me one more story. 
we were talking to a Pakistani wife, her and her husband were arranged marriages. And we were talking about these dynamics and she goes, well, you guys pick spouses, but it doesn't seem to be working too well for you guys. <laughs> wow. you know, for us, you know, our families know us well. They have our best interest in mind. They arrange marriage for us and we learn to love each other. Because after all, oh. we're committed to one another. Here we are. So that changes the whole nature of love rather than just going, what are you doing for me? Because the way we think of love, like I like Love is Blind and the Ultimatum, those shows, because I find them interesting thought experiments. But it's constantly about what are they doing for me? What are they doing for me? And those shows make being a non-Christian very unattractive. Because oh, of man. the <laughs> lack of genuine biblical love, it's all about how you're servicing me. Oh, man, this is a little bit unformed, but maybe you can help me with this. As a pastor, one of the things that breaks my heart, and I see increasingly every single day, is this, this dynamic and this existential fear and doubt of, does God love me? Hmm. And you can say, you know, of course he does. He forgives you, but there's something about the way that we're using the word love that stays on the surface and doesn't penetrate into the deepest parts of ourselves. It feels like what we actually mean is, does God feel loving toward me? Mm-hmm. And part of me wants to say, you know, what's actually better than feeling loving toward you is that he has chosen to always love you no mm-hmm. matter what we do or what we think or what we feel about his feelings toward us. I think Bonhoeffer, one of his friends who wrote him a letter in jail, and it was on the occasion of his becoming engaged. And he says that your marriage will sustain your love. Your love will not sustain your marriage. Yeah. And I keep thinking about how like, you know, you know how God loves you? You want him to. You know how God's love is committed to you? You are in his bride and he is committed to his bride. Uh, his bride has done far worse than you could do to break that covenant. And God insists you won't. Well, with individualistic marriages, you have no concept for that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When love is tied to individualism, your sense of being lovable is linked to how well you stand out, what you achieve, right? And so if you're not standing out or if you're failing ever, then the kind of built-in assumption is that somehow you're less valuable to him. Whereas mm. that is simply not the way a collectivistic mindset thinks. It's like, we are tied together, whether we want to or not, frankly, <laughs> you know, you know, often not, <laughs> you know, right, right. You think about, for example, your two-year-old at some level, they're not contributing <laughs> to anything, right? You know, they're, they're, they're useless, so to speak, you know what I mean? But yet you love them anyways. Okay. But yet we lose that. Because like that two-year-old is not an individual in some sense, you know, they're just kind of blending in with the crowd and what's going on, just coming along, right? And we lose that sense because we think love individualistically. Mm. Well, that even shows up with the newer trend that people think of love and marriage and they write their own vows, you know, and, and not that that is necessarily problematic. I do think it's symptomatic of like, hey, you're part of something much bigger here. And there's a reason we have these vows that have been mm-hmm. said for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, something to think about. But I'm curious, like, so the culture forms us to think that way. Our culture forms us to think individualistically. But if we think about the church and its role in identity formation and how individualism has distorted that, mm. 
what are some ways that the church, you know, we've kind of tapped into this already, but what are some ways that the church can be part of the process of helping someone see their identity collectively rather than just individually? Oh my, this is really worth a whole podcast by itself. Let's do it. So, <laughs> so uh, let me just try to think through at least a few things because I just couldn't imagine. You know, I anticipated this question. So first off, let me start then with a the negative. Being the church is nearly impossible when there's no sense of mutual ownership, mutual investment, and discipleship is cognitive, which therefore is individual and private. When there's no emphasis on obedience, because obedience always involves others, because you can't demand obedience, because then, you know, who are you to impose your values on the mind? And then when all that happens, people will put their fundamental identity, when the church is minimized and these sorts of mutual connections and obligations are minimized or whatnot or not talked about, people will put their fundamental collective identity in groups outside the church, whether it be their ethnicity, gender, political party. It will happen. You know, one of the things that we didn't talk about is all the ways that collectivism is in the West and all the ways individualism is in the East. But I mean, collectivism is still here and that's one way it's going to manifest. Yeah, it's like if we, anthropologically speaking, if identity formation is determined by how we are created as image bearers and what God has done, then it's not like if the church doesn't provide an avenue for this and if it doesn't do that, it's not like, okay, we can go without that. You will seek outside the church. I mean, I mean, I just well, people say, "Oh, we're image bearers. We're all individuals and whatever else." I want to say, okay, first off, yes, but no, because <laughs> our identity as image bearers is derivative. Okay, and when you start doing the heavy lifting of what it means to be an image of God, it's a collective. Idea. It's talking about humanity collectively. You know, like the body, mm. okay? And when you get into the ancient Near Eastern idea, yes, we are individually only by virtue of the fact that we're part of the body. So if you cut off my hand, guess what? It's not part of my body. It's no longer my body. But we tend to think of every individual part, you know, as if those are all individual images of God, which is only sort of true, okay? So when we talk about the image of God, the emphasis is not individuality. The image is uh, belonging to God, deriving from God. We are a mirror, a reflection but we keep trying to be the light source itself. And so we miss this part when we talk about the image of God. I have been using as almost a record on repeat, the idea that one could belong to God and not belong to a particular body, a local church is so foreign to the authors of scripture. There's not even any interaction with the idea that would say, no, this is wrong because it wasn't even something that occurred to them as something to contextualize the gospel into. Like that kind of shows how much more individualistic we are, even though we can trace a lot of this back to Greece and Greek culture. But even then we're like, hold my beer to that. Anything that that was. And this is one reason why like it really was a bigger conversation in this respect it all starts with the gospel that we're winning people with. And go back to the revivals, the individualistic revivals. If you win people to an individualistic message, then you have won them to a faith life of individualism. And what's the point of the church if the only point is for me and God to become buddies and go to heaven? There is no point. It's just a burden. Okay. What's the alternative? 
John and I are like wide-eyed, nodding vigorously as you're saying this. And we are still very new to what little self-awareness we have around how individualism is saturating our ministry in ways that you are articulating a very clear alternative. So what does that gospel sound like that is for people in an individualistic culture, but not only an individualistic gospel? Well, I can give you the answer, but it won't make a lot of sense unless we had a lot more time to unpack it. Uh, I have written on this. I've done videos on it, but I will say this. First off, the gospel is the message that Jesus is king. It's not the message of how we get saved. It's the message we must believe in order to be saved. And when we constantly confuse the two, then Mm. how we get saved becomes about me. And God loves me so much. Well, if God loves me that much, I love me that much. Well, great. We get along. We're both worshiping me. Right. Okay. That's convenient. Right. Now, when the gospel is the fact that Jesus is king, which it is, I've argued this academically, so forth and so on, that that's the core message. Now, all of a sudden, it's away from us. Our identity is in someone else. And every king has a kingdom, which means a kingdom people. You cannot Uh. give loyalty to a king without belonging to his people. To leave his people is to leave the king. You know, so that is like at a super macro level. Yeah. No, well, I mean, the, Jesus came announcing the gospel of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. I'll give an example. When I was talking to a Chinese mm-hmm. friend of mine, some Chinese friends, we were talking about how like a traditional like plan of salvation message. And he goes, you know what? Now that I think about it, we were contrasting different aspects of the gospel. He goes, now that I think about it, the traditional way of talking about the plan of salvation is really just Buddhism. It's this individual having some sort of theological Easter knowledge. And if I affirm that, then I get to live some disinvited existence in some place called heaven. Mm. And, I, and I said, well, what if I said, by contrast, I'm just kind of fleshing out with them. I said, what if I said Jesus is chairman? Now, keep in mind, their president is considered chairman, right? It's like mm-hmm. emperor, king, the supreme authority. He goes, Oh, that makes complete sense. That tells me everything we need to know and why this all matters. Because if Jesus is chairman, Mm. well, then everything else falls into place in terms of what's required of me and what faith actually looks like. So in an individualist culture with individual gospel, no wonder we think faith is just cognitive assent to certain doctrines. Whereas faith, biblically spoken, is allegiance to a king and therefore his people, which is inherently (sighs) practical. (laughs) to live under a monarchy is not the same as living in a democracy. And let me say this to a Westerner because they will mishear you. I've heard it before. To live in a monarchy does not mean live in a dictatorship. Mm. Correct. You know, so people hear that as only negative, you know, monarchy. Well, I mean, it depends on the character of the king, right? Exactly. Exactly. If this is a king whose holiness is defined by his mercy, Mm -hmm. then... That's a completely different story. Yep. Yep. Oh, man. You all right, Brad? Uh, Dr. Vaughn, I, I don't... I, I don't I see some smoke coming out of your ears there. I, I know. Like, no, I... What's incredible about this is I just want to sit in it. I don't have other questions because I'm just like... Yeah. There's a... Something I've been trying to articulate to our people lately is that, like, you know, there's a gift in being a pastor because I have to show up to church every Sunday. Like it's part of my job. I am obligated to it, but let me tell you why that's actually awesome because I don't have to do what so many of you do, which is every freaking Saturday have the conversation of should we go to church tomorrow or not? 
Do you know how exhausting that sounds to me? Do you know how freeing it is to know that I am obligated to do by virtue of my role? And also, do you realize that's actually what you're obligated to also with the commandment to keep the Sabbath and to keep it holy? What they're really saying is that relationships are optional. Oh, man. And then people wonder why they don't have community and they feel so alone. And they'll go, well, people aren't reaching Mm. out to me. And I always ask those people, oh, are you reaching out to them? Yeah. Well, I can't because I've got all this stuff on my plate, my kids' sports leagues and, you know, yeah. Well, and that's also where authenticity gets in the way of intentionality. I mean, the commandments Mm. are intentional. Love each other. You know, under the king, the king has filled us with his love. So it doesn't matter how you feel. And mm-hmm. the loyalty that the king has shown to you in the midst of your sin and shame, show that loyalty to others, no matter how you feel, if you don't like them or not. Anybody um, with kids knows that. There are days that you're not their biggest fans, but she will do whatever it takes for their yes. guests. Yeah. Oh, man. Amen. Yeah. And Amen. I mean, and or married. I mean, yeah. when I officiate weddings, I tell couples like, you need to understand that what you are committing right now is yourself, not how you feel about the other person. What you are committing is your devotion, not your desire. You can't commit your desire because you have no idea what your desire will or will not be on a given day based on the weather or your illness or health or, you know, in poverty or in wealth. And, oh, that's the vows. Actually, it's devotion, not desire. Like, Oh my God. I mean, what it would change alone if we understood love through the lens of loyalty and commitment when you read the one another's in scripture, when you read love one another as I have loved the church. It's not to say that you are to feel loving or to love people when you feel like it. It is to be loyal in a way that supersedes any other earthly commitment and is the framework for understanding marriage. Never mind family. We've got it backwards. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I'm now I'm just like kind of combination verbal processing and preaching at the same time, which is real dangerous. Uh, we could be so, here for two hours, but man, this is so helpful though. Yeah. We'd be talking for two hours. Everybody else would have turned us off. <laughs> we can keep going. I think it is really helpful because this season we're really digging into what does formation look like? in all these different categories. And we wanted to sort of broach with you this idea of identity formation. And in some ways to tease that out as Westerners, it's helpful to look at a context that's not Western. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, I think you've really helped us get some clarity around maybe some strong points in the West and maybe some incredibly weak points that we have in terms of how identity is created informed for us and maybe some pathways that leaders can lean into in order to shape those that they're leading and shepherding, whether that be in the church or whether that be in an organization. I'm curious as we wrap up, as we think about maybe just leading people in general, is there any hot tips you have for helping people bond together in a more collective sense? Even in this moment, we're so polarized. Yeah. And even like, because that doesn't happen unless we're able to articulate the good news of collective responsibility. Like why this is actually good and more satisfying than mere rights, right? Mm -hmm. 
Well, yeah. to use a trite phrase, I, I cringe saying this, but one of the things is be the change. You know, so mm. like invite people. Like nobody hosts anymore these days in their home. They'll go out to a restaurant, mm-hmm. bring people into your home ad nauseum, right? Let people see your house messy. Like mm. constantly make sure people are crowding into your life. Put up with inconvenience. Like it's okay. Yes, it's inconvenience. Move on and you're going to be tired. Mm. Yeah, you're going to be tired no matter what because guess what? We have a certain amount of calories we burn through them every day. Make your tired be worth it because you're investing in relationships. And you guess what? Eventually this gets contagious because people go, you know what? I really like the way that family loves people and commits to people and serves. I want to be like that. It's, mm. it's contagious. Mm. That's really good. That's really good. It's something that can definitely be taught, but it sounds like what you're saying is just as important as that it's caught, is that people see you doing it it's impossible to do it merely with cognitive because it keeps it all in the head. Yeah. Yeah. Bring people along, you know, constantly, whatever you're doing, have someone come along, stop privatizing your family. Like we're just, we're in our silo. We're a larger family. That's what the gospel does. It brings us to the human family. So like our kids mm-hmm. are just used to having people over and then they learn to host. And then we go serve with this family. We do this, whatever else. Cause that's just what we do. We're a broader community. We're not just merely our, biological castle here that's really good that's really good well we've been talking with dr brad vaughn about identity and the differences and similarities between how that is shaped and formed in the west and shaped and formed in the east we've got a lot to think about and we're so thankful that you've given us an hour of your time we really appreciate you and your thoughts and thanks for coming on hey thanks i enjoyed the conversation taking notes together of all the stuff that we wanted to process post the interview. Let's start off with that whole thing of rights responsibility, rights, you know, as an individual responsibility to the community. What did you take away from that? I mean, I, let me just preface this with like, my mind is still reeling. Like I knew that this was going to be a very good and fruitful and helpful conversation, even around these things particular, but I just keep finding myself surprised by how deep the rabbit hole goes. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking about membership and talking about how membership is in frustrated, like the principle and the actual like formal process of membership is frustrated by this tension between rights and responsibilities. I think you would agree with this, but it struck me how much when we are talking about our relationships with other people, we might be kind of more open to the idea of responsibility. But when we're talking about a responsibility to an institution, oh, heck no. No, 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 no. The purpose of the institution here is to support and help with my rights. And anything that might constrain my freedom, there isn't a category for that that, that could be good. But his point when he was saying that like, if churches don't emphasize or talk about responsibility or obligation, if we don't have a positive vision for that, then people will find that collective connection and ascribing and receiving of identity, of dignity, value, and worth 
elsewhere outside the church. Like it hit me between the eyes. I'm like, you just described the implications of a very consumer driven model for church where we say, we are not here to call you to anything. Don't pick up your cross and follow Jesus here. We are going to feed you better than anyone or anywhere else. But what we, right, what we miss in that is that hospitality is not a fast food restaurant. It is actually a communal relationship before and beyond that nourishment happens, right? And so it's interesting because we have these other places in our lives where we see this, but within the church for, I'm sure, many, many reasons, we don't view obligation like it could be a good thing. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. to be obligated in ways that are not good for you ends up being bad, right? If you are obligated to do something that is immoral or obligated to do something that is not for your good, absolutely. But like, if a church views itself as obligated to your good, and that's a two-way street, you can actually lean into that and you can trust that. And this whole podcast, right, we've been, you know, our kind of vision for this is to explore what it means to remap culture and rethink leadership in a liminal age. And there is nothing more liminal than a society where all the individuals do not believe they have any responsibility to one another or to society as a whole, yet they feel very entitled for society to be responsible to them. Yeah. Like yeah. it doesn't work if, if it's only no. one directional. Right. And I don't know any way out of this mess or out of this constant instability and in a world in flux and feeling that way in our day-to-day lives without starting somewhere to take that responsibility and trust that God can use that to flourish us and others. It is interesting that you use the whole eating metaphor for membership. Cause one of the things we talk about in our membership classes, we talk about church as family and the Bible's full of so many different metaphors mm. for what the church is, but we like to use the word family. And we use the example of our church being like a family potluck and what happens if everybody comes to the potluck expecting to eat, which would be rights, <laughs> but no one brings a dish, oh, man. which would be responsibility? Well, then it's not a good party. It's not a good family meal. And I think you're right that both in the church, we have sort of catered to the individualism, sort of the rights. I want it to be this way without calling people into, well, let's make it that way together, right? Mm. It's not just about church the way I want it. Let's make church for someone else. Let's be responsible for this together. Also, it's kind of interesting because I wonder even, not to say that you're doing it wrong at all. I guarantee (laughs) I am. I wonder if like what you described with the potluck, like there's a sense that like, well, if you want to be able to eat, then you have to bring some chili too. And there's a way that even that can be kind of twisted individualistically. And I wonder if there's a way out of it in that, when my wife and I, we were first married, we did some marriage counseling and I've always found this so helpful. Our counselor told us, think about your marriage as a third person in your relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And she was articulating there, like there's this tension that when two people are married and you're talking about like, what does it look like for us to be married? It feels like it's so easy to slip into this zero sum kind of perspective that views helping the other person's wants and needs as like, that means you're going to have to sacrifice your own wants and needs. But if you view your marriage as a third person, then there's a sense that if you're both committed to nourishing that third person, you both actually benefit too. 
And I just wonder if there's a similar thing with like the church, not just the community of individuals, right? But the church being the third person in your relationship to other Christians within the church and not conflating those two. I have no idea if that could be helpful or not. I'm just like very... Yeah, Yeah, well, I think back to the potluck, you know, so the potluck is the third person. It's like, Mm. I usually say it would be a horrible party to get people (laughs) to think it's not just about what I'm eating or you're eating or if I brought more food than you and you brought less. But like, if everybody brings something, we've got a great party here, especially because everyone brings something individually that reflects who they are. They bring an item of food. So, but it's funny that you mentioned that even as you talk about the third person in your marriage, it made me think about kind of the second thing that I took away from talking with Brad was just this idea of story and narrative. He said something that it all starts with the gospel that we're winning people with. Mm. And I think related to that is that everyone sort of has a narrative in their mind of a story that they're part of. And a lot of times that narrative is subconscious. And so people will find their identity based on that story. And I think what I've seen in our church is that the longer people are around, the more they're likely to place their identity in their church. Like when they first come, they might say, you guys here at New City. And I kind of know, okay, that means they're still trying to figure out if they want to be part of this. And then eventually Mm. they'll start saying things like my pastor and they'll talk to me and say that, or they'll say, well, we, right? And so all of a sudden they've changed the story. They've put their identity within the story. I think that's true with the church. I think it's true with the gospel. If we see the gospel as something that's primarily to serve me, then we function that way as Christians. Whereas if we see the story and narrative, rather it's about centering the king of the universe, Christo and Kyrios, Jesus is Messiah Mm. and Lord. And then we have the privilege of being part of that because of the cross and the resurrection and his shed blood. Then it totally changes how we think about myself and ourselves together. Man, that's so good. Uh, I mean, is this your takeaway or or is it even like... Yeah, where, how, how are you processing I go, all this? I need to go write a sermon about it, probably. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I just think that that matters, like that the idea of what the background story is with both the gospel and the church. What is this? Is it a mm. consumeristic opportunity for individuals or is it something that gives glory to the king of the universe? It's a question that we've got to ask. And if we're going to chip away at people's individualistic identity and get them to think more collectively, we've got to not just challenge them to actions of responsibility, but I think get in there cognitively and help them reframe and rethink the story that they think they're in. Oh, yeah, that's so good, man. We, we know this. You and I, like, we- <laughs> I think I'm just so struck by how hard it is to maintain that perspective because of how saturated we are in individualistic articulations of the gospel and just individualism in general. It's literally our job to resist that. And it's hard. It's very hard. Man. Yeah. Yeah. There's one more point you wanted to cover before we uh, called it a day here. Well, I, I think we both were struck by the idea of love as loyalty versus love as feeling. You use this, I'm going to steal this for Please. the next wedding I do, the difference between desire and devotion. Mm. You use that phrase. Talk about that a little bit more. 
In so many ways, it goes back to what we've talked about here before in Acts chapter 2, when it says that disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And the word devotion is a better word and gets at what it means to love the church because it is a self-giving act. It is a giving of self holistically. You can't hold back like Brad was talking about, pointing to his hand, is this my body? What? Yes, it's part of it. You can't just be like, okay, I'm going to be tangentially committed. I can devote this many hours per week to church. No, are you devoted? Have you devoted yourself? And it's like, nobody can make that. It's wrong to coerce that, right? It doesn't say, you know, the apostles made them devote themselves, right? Like there's nothing like that. It is a response. There's a desire that prompts it, but it is not in an ongoing conditional sense dependent on your ongoing desire. That is a very tenuous attachment. It is a self-giving in a way that Christ gave himself for the bride. And that means, yeah. The reason that's good news though, I keep thinking about this. Uh, There's a great thrice song and the chorus of it is love is a loyalty sworn, not a burning for a moment. And Mm -hmm. I think like I was trying to articulate with Dr. Vaughn is that we think that God's love for us is a burning for a moment. Hmm. And there's something about our cultural kind of place and time we're in that's like, well, if it's a loyalty sworn, then can he truly love us? It's like, well, uh, yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's actually better. Right. We struggle with God's love for us because we want to know that it's emotion based and it's always that way. It's always how God feels about me. You know, well, when it's it, like, no, that's not how it works. And also, I think he actually does feel that way about you all the time, right? Zephaniah 317, one of my favorite passages mm. in scripture is the Lord your God will dance over you and rejoice over you with loud singing, right? Mm. Like it's a promise. It's prescriptive. It's not descriptive, right? Let me put it this way. If we view God's love through the lens of feelings, then we will only ever struggle with viewing his emotions and feelings toward us through the lens of our feelings toward him, which are fickle. Yeah, exactly. Our hearts exactly. are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. But if it is commitment, if it is a loyalty sworn, and he's swearing by his name, by his very self, he's saying, I could no longer stop loving you as cease to be God. Right. right. So if God doesn't love you, because he's not God anymore. And that's actually not possible. (laughs) That's the whole point is to elevate God's love for us as something that transcends how we feel about him. Yeah. And if that's not the gospel that we're preaching, God is greater than our hearts. (sighs) Praise God. Yeah. No, I'm preaching. Sorry. (laughs) That's all right. That's right. Man, this was so encouraging. I really appreciated Dr. Brad Vaughn and I loved how he got passionate at, several different times, just taking our questions seriously. This is great. I think this season we're painting a picture of not only just specific areas of formation, but some common themes that we're going to find in every area of formation. Mm. And I'll be interested to see how that develops as we continue in this season. So I look forward to the next time, Brad. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like we're looking at a multifaceted singular gem that is God's love. And there are just so many different implications and ways to view it. So yeah, man, let's do it again next time. Sounds good. Thank you for listening. 
If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.